a lot has been made about the culture wars in the past few years. And as Christians, as members of society, the culture at large, we of course have a responsibility to work towards the common good. But our primary responsibility and mission here at Trinity isn't to transform the culture, it's to make disciples. So what if we made it our goal this year together to focus on the culture of our own household? What if we made it our goal this year to continue to put in effort to transform our minds and in so doing, transform the culture of this church here? To rightly recognize, to rightly value this body as a people who are united around the gospel uh, as brothers and sisters, a genuine familial love for one another, to rightly value the church as a supernatural community that God is building and that he invites us to cultivate. A passage like today's gives us a chance to reflect on what that might look like. After 11 chapters of very thick doctrine in the beginning of Romans, Paul now has moved into this section that's really focused more on instruction and exhortation and encouragement. In light of the redemption afforded to us in Christ, this is how we should then live as redeemed Christians. The head and the heart and the hands divinely activated and put to work serving one another for the glory of God. The Christian life is moved by the genuine love of God and our adopted family. And this is a sort of unique passage here this morning, and so we're gonna switch up from our normal approach. The controlling phrase of this whole passage, it seems, is let love be genuine. That's the controlling uh, phrase, clause of this whole passage, and probably really the whole rest of the chapter and, and beyond. Let love be genuine. That phrase informs everything that follows it. And so that'll be our big idea. Let love be genuine. And then we'll just meditate on each of the verses that follows it through that lens, one at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this morning, this opportunity to gather. Help us not to take this for granted. Help us by your spirit to be encouraged by your word here, uh, to be admonished, to be corrected where we need to be, but to be able to walk out of here today recognizing who you have called us to be and encourage us to live as a local church who is displaying as a community of compelling love that love that you first showed to us. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let love be genuine. This is a, a short, forceful expression, and really it's both an observation and an instruction. It's an observation and an instruction. There is actually no verb in this clause in the original language, and so we have to make our own verb. We have to add it in there in order to turn it into an English statement. Love is genuine. And that's just a statement of fact. By its very definition, love is genuine. It is sincere. It is without hypocrisy. But then it lands on us too as an instruction. 
if love is genuine, then, then we ought to let our love be genuine. Since true and proper love is genuine, it is sincere, don't pretend to love. And because we are commanded to love, we should not fail to love sincerely. Now, it might be helpful to think about this by way of contrast in an illustration. This is what a disingenuous, insincere love looks like. Luke 22, verses 47 to 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This, of course, is that scene where Jesus is betrayed. He is handed over for crucifixion there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' disciples that he invited into his life, he decided that he would rather have silver than Jesus himself. And so he was willing to trade him in. He was willing to use Jesus to get what he wanted. He was willing to betray Jesus. But at the same time, Judas wanted to protect himself in that act of betrayal. He didn't want anyone to know that he was betraying Jesus. And so he came up with this secret sign to identify Jesus for those soldiers who were going to arrest him. A kiss. That way he could give the outward appearance of love while secretly acting in selfishness. And so we could rightly say that he put on a mask of love to hide and enable his hatred. It's hard to imagine a more explicit example of hypocritical love, selfishness disguised as love. That is, that is not love. That is not genuine love. It's just an appearance of love and an insincere love. Love, by definition, is not self-seeking. It's actually the antithesis of love as we read elsewhere in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, this, this comes on the heels of what Paul has said just earlier here in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, which is to say this present evil age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Judas is an illustration of this world's self-seeking love. Self-love and self-care is increasingly being seen as being foremost and primary in our current cultural moment. That's the view of love that you and I are under constant pressure to be conformed into. We're encouraged to take care of ourselves first, to focus on our own wishes, to focus on our own needs, our own desires. But here we have the distinct Christian view of love, which is a little bit shocking in light of the current cultural moment's definition of love. It is an others-focused love that really should resonate, though, with anyone who's been born again from above. So let's take a moment. Let's try to renew our minds together. Now let's have God define love for us. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. And so we can really only rightly understand love in its truest sense after having seen it displayed and explained by the only one who loves perfectly. God is love. It's 1 John 4.8. 
He is essentially love in all that he is. How is God love? Well, we would want to begin by saying God is first and foremost love in himself. There has eternally been love between the three persons of the one God. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father's love. And the Holy Spirit is eternally breathed out as the fullness of the supreme love between the Father and the Son. And so there's, there's an eternal divine love that is not dependent upon anything in creation. This is an eternal divine love that is untarnished, it is unspoiled, and it is untouched by human sin. And that's certainly not true of us. And so it's God's definition, his illustration of love that must be our starting point when we're trying to understand what love ought to be. His is the only perfect, genuine love in that sense. So let's think about God's love, even just as it's spoken here uh, within the book of Romans itself. Romans 5.5 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when, when we are born again, God, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from God the Father, lights the furnace of our heart. The heart is strangely warmed toward the love of God and neighbor. This is a description of being born again and that love that is ignited in the Christian heart. But God the Father doesn't just tell us that he loves us in order to give us the impression that he's loving, so that we might worship him as being loving, but he's not genuinely loving. No, God the Father demonstrated his love for us in and through the cross of Christ, even for those who were his enemies. So Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, as we just sang moments ago. I love that, that prayer from the Valley of Vision called Love Lusters at Calvary. And I'm gonna read some of it I'll have it on the slide there. And as I read this, remember that this is, this is a, a description of the demonstration of love. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, thirsty that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou might spare me, all this transfer, thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. You can 
read more of that, banneroftruth.org. It's from the Valley of Vision, highly recommended. But that's just a pure definition of the way that God demonstrated his love for us at great cost. And so if God has done all of this to demonstrate his love for us, what would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Well, Paul answers that question, of course, in Romans 8.35, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God doesn't quit or give up in his love. God's love persists. That is genuine love. Selflessly, persistently expressed and demonstrated, not for selfish gain, but actually great cost to self. So God is love. Love is genuine. And now it's our turn then to let our love be genuine in that way. Genuine love is selflessly and persistently expressed and demonstrated. Now this, this passage, these verses have particular application to the local church. And next week it expands a little bit beyond the church and then even after that into chapter 13 it'll be talking about our relationship to the government. But this morning we're thinking specifically about the, the local church. We are individually members of one another. Verse five says just before this. So let's walk through these verses then just one at a time and explain how that genuine love informs how we are to relate to one another. Verse nine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, it might be a little bit shocking after we've just spent so much time talking about love to see the next verb is, being, is abhor. It might be a little bit shocking. To abhor something is to hate it strongly. Seems like quite a strong contrast there, doesn't it? This is a strong word to abhor. This is the only time this particular word shows up in the Bible. It's to loathe, to, to shrink back from. Like when you have to open some Tupperware that you forgot in the back of your fridge for like six months. You're like, gotta open it. This, this strong feeling of revulsion from evil. This is not inconsistent with genuine love. Remember, God defines and God demonstrates love. He is, by his own nature, infinitely holy, untouched by sin. Habakkuk 1 tells us that he is too pure, his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. So God, who is love, abhors what is evil. He shrinks away from sin, if we can speak in that way. There are some plants, I don't know if you know this, there are some plants that if you try to reach out and touch them, they kind of recoil from you. Just by their nature, you reach out to the plant, you touch it, and it recoils. And so God, by his nature, shrinks back from the touch of sin. So that, that evil should cause us to recoil. The opposite of that is to hold fast. To hold fast to what is good is to cleave. It's that same word that's used to speak of a man holding fast to his wife. A strong, united bond. So we should hold on tightly to that which is good. So love, rightly understood, should cause the Christian to shrink back from what God calls evil and to stay glued to what God declares good. How does the Christian's view of what is evil and what is good differ? If we're trying to transform our minds and not be conformed to the world, how does our view of what is evil and good differ from what we most commonly hear today? It would be obviously impossible to, to mention everything, but I think we might be able to boil it down to this. 
the essence of the difference is this. The world decides what's good and evil based on shifting moral tastes. But Christians are told what is good and evil by our Creator. And so this current cultural moment elevates morals and ethics based on whatever folks find palatable, whatever morally tastes good and right in the particular moment. And of course, we have seen that taste uh, shift a lot over the last decade at least. The morals and ethics have shifted a lot over the past few decades, and they would say that there are no unchanging laws about what's good and evil. We're all just kind of making it up. We're all getting together and agreeing upon it, and we should be able to, to change it. We should always be progressing towards becoming better and redefining what is good and evil. And so they're constantly looking for the next moral norm that they can transgress so that they can celebrate it as a victory for humanity. This is sort of the mindset. And brother or sister, you will be tempted to be drawn up into that cultural trend. If you haven't been already, it's going to happen. It is, it's hard work. It's hard work living as a countercultural person. We don't like to stand out. We don't like to be different. We tend to fall in line with that message that we hear most often or that message that makes us fit in so that we can be with and among those people that we want to be like. Or maybe it's the, the, the message that we hear that will cost us the least. We'll just tend to drift towards it. And we'll come up with a thousand excuses to justify how that process has happened, how we've traded good for evil. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 5:20, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter." A love that is genuine is able and willing to call evil what it is. Because remember, this, these whole, all these phrases are coming within the context of a relationship of a local church. Evil causes harm to others whom we love. And that love causes us to hate that evil, even in the way that it affects others. Love desires true good for others that can bring about life and flourishing in their life. And we need to stay vigilant together in this so that we don't let ourselves be, be swept away. Righteousness is not at odds with love. If you've ever been given the impression that that's true, transform your mind. Righteousness is not at odds with love. They go together. You can see it right here. But we are under constant pressure to pretend like that's not true. So we need each other. Uh, we need each other to remind one another what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. And we have one another, happily, in this new family that's called the church. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This instruction in this verse is to be devoted to one another as members of Christ's body with brotherly affection, as we're members one of another. Philadelphia is actually the word here, brotherly love. Now this might not land on us in the same way that it might have landed on the original audience. I'm not sure that we all appreciate or value as highly the institution of the family as they did 
in the original context, there was a unique expectation for those who were within the family. Siblings were to stand in solidarity with one another. Uh, and so taking a brother to court was unthinkable. That was just not something that was done. There were strong emotional attachments within the family as well between siblings. Uh, we might think that Paul kind of gets a little bit sappy when he writes to other Christians and talks about how they're the beloved and how much he loves them. We're like, tone it down a notch, bro. But he, he means it. That's how families were supposed to feel about one another. Did you know that God commanded your feelings here? There was a unique affection that siblings were to have for one another. So those who came from the same household were to have a different and a stronger love than the the general love that they would have for for neighbors. And Paul has already told us in Romans 8.15 that Christians have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so we're not only counted righteousness, we're not only justified in, in through Christ, but we are adopted in and through Christ. In Jesus, our older brother, we now have been adopted and incorporated into God's family and now have the privilege that he gave to us of approaching him in prayer and in worship as our father. We are united in that sense. Even though we're almost all from different biological families, there are some implications and responsibilities that come with that. As being members of this new family, there are implications that are related to that. And one of the implications is that your household might have had different expectations than God's household. You might not have had the healthiest culture in your home. Maybe your siblings weren't affectionate towards one another. Maybe this wasn't the way that your house valued it. Maybe you actually even tried to undermine one another uh, as siblings. Maybe you never learned how to express your love in a genuine way. And so you, by default, sort of fall back on immature marking, uh, mocking of one another, or snarky, passive-aggressive insults as your love language. That's not a love language. And it is not the culture of this church. It's unbecoming within God's household. It might have been okay in your family. It's not okay in God's family. Siblings were supposed to not compete for one another, to try to gain more honor over one another. It was actually the opposite of that. They were actually to compete in the opposite direction. Ray Ortland, a pastor who was with us here last year, says he, he thinks this might be the only spot in the Bible where we're explicitly told to compete against one another, to outdo one another. And the more competitive we get with each other, the more everybody wins. We are encouraged literally to to take the lead in showing honor to one another. And so as we see evidences of God's grace in each other's lives, we should call attention to that and we should celebrate it. And remember, all of this is in the light of love being genuine. So this is absolutely not flattery. That has to be clear. It is not saying that you, you, you like something about someone in order to fish for compliments. It's not to say that you like something be, or say like something about someone be, because you want them to return the favor or just to, to think of you in a more positive light. That's, that's self-seeking. That's not genuine. So flattery is not what we have in mind here. Showing honor is not flattery. 
we're looking at the contributions of others, and we're honoring them. We shouldn't feel weird about this. We shouldn't feel uncomfortable by seeing the gifts that God has seen fit to equip his body with and seeing it and naming it and celebrating it. This should, be, this should be a thing that naturally happens. And when it does happen, it brings glory to God, recognizing that he is the source of all these gifts, and it brings encouragement to your brother or sister. And we all need encouragement, do we not? Come on. There is no reason anyone should be starved for encouragement here. We should be boiling over with encouragement for one another. Particularly this church. This place is filled with talented people who deserve recognition. Not to gain glory for themselves, but to recognize the gifts that God has given to them and to encourage them to spur them on in their work. So thanking them directly speaking highly about them in front of others, spreading positive reports about them behind their back. And there's some degree to which, of course, your ability to be honored within the body is going to be dependent upon how much you're able to be included within the body. This makes sense. So folks who are more integrated into the body through classes, community groups, one-to-one discipleship, they'll be available to be seen and honored more than someone who stays on the edges by design. But I bet you could all look around right now and find someone that you could honor this morning. We only have one service. You guys know each other fairly well by design. Look around. Is there someone in here this morning that you could encourage? It shouldn't be hard. It's like fish in a barrel. I know you all fairly well. There's a lot to be encouraged about here. And maybe you've never done this before. Maybe you're like, this just isn't done. That's okay. We're going to start. Let's just break the ice this morning. We're going to break the ice of outdoing one another in honor. You might have noticed in your worship guide on your way in that there is a card that on the front has Romans 12.10, which says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Your assignment this morning is to pull out that card and flip it over to the blank side and to write someone a note. Just jot down one or two specific things that you've seen that you want to be able to honor about them. This is not a joke. We're doing this. It's not going to be weird if we all do it. This is not flattery. You might not even know their name. That's okay but maybe you've observed how they've cared for your kids during church so that you could join. Maybe they had a warm smile for you when you were on your way in the building this morning. Maybe it's how they serve us by running sound so that we can uh, enjoy the service together. Or maybe you know someone who is persevering through sorrow with a Christ-exalting joy. Or maybe there's a young person who stays engaged and focused on the service Maybe there's somebody who's cooking a meal for us right now so that we might be able to enjoy it in a little bit. Think of someone, write it down. You've got time to do that between now and the Pulse meeting. And if you're like, one card's not enough, nice. There's a bunch of them stacked up on the welcome desk. You're welcome to grab more. Verse 11. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Stay zealous, he says. He instructs us. Stay zealous to keep up your spirit by the Holy Spirit in your service to the Lord. Being slothful, of course, is is lacking energy. It's being cold, lacking initiative. The opposite of that, of course, is being fervent in the spirit, to stay hot in the spirit. Someone rightly said that you should be fanning the flames of the Holy Spirit to keep your spirit boiling. You might notice in your translation that the spirit there has a capital S. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, unclear. Did Paul mean the Holy Spirit? Did he mean our spirit? I think the best way to read that is it's our spirit by the Holy Spirit, keeping us in driving us towards service of the Lord. We probably all know what happens when discouragement sets in. When we lose our zeal, this thing, these things happen. The next step beyond that discouragement is that our spirit faints, as it were, within us. We become slothful in zeal after discouragement sets in. And I love how this verse is structured because there's some folks who have big conferences or TV shows that would have us believe that staying hot in the Holy Spirit means that you should roll around in the aisles or start laughing uncontrollably or or mumble some made up words that nobody can understand. But this verse tells us that our spiritual warmth should be evaluated by our service to the Lord. In other words, staying hot in the spirit is not expressed by showing how you've lost control of your body. It's expressed in serving the Lord and his body. So serving the Lord stirs up and regulates our zeal by the Holy Spirit. Genuine love serves from a place of gratitude and not mere obligation. And of course, we would recognize that there might be some seasons in which you simply are able to serve less than you would love to be able to do. And we should not be given any guilt trips about that at all. You don't need to serve at this family in order to earn your place at the table. That's not how this works. But maybe you're discouraged. Maybe feeling like your spirit is beginning to turn cold in this sense. Pray now where you're at. Ask that your zeal would return to you, that that fire that you had, perhaps at your baptism or when you first dedicated yourself to the Lord, that zeal, that fire, pray that that would be stirred up again, that you'd be able to serve with zeal with whatever gift God has given to you, whether that's the the gift of prayer or encouragement or leading or doing acts of mercy, stay hot in the spirit. Don't lose steam. You're not alone. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And so, again, all of these verses before this have leaned into this genuine definition of of love given to us, demonstrated for us by God, and this verse ought to be seen through those same light. A genuine love for God recalls his promises and trusts that nothing will separate us from God's love. A genuine love of God recalls his promises and it trusts that nothing will separate us from Christ's love. No situation, no circumstance, anything in all creation could ever potentially even do that. 
But that level of hope does not come naturally to us. And so we, we need to be intentional to stir it up supernaturally, to remind ourselves, to remind others of the necessity of hope and patience and consistency, persistence. No matter the circumstance, we are encouraged to rejoice in hope. Paul wrote this from prison. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so even there, you can see all three of these things molded together, faith, hope, love. Our perseverance in the midst of tribulation will be measured by our diligence in prayer and submission to God's holy will. This is an encouragement to us, hopefully, as a community of faith and a community of hope and a community of love to remind each other of these things. This really is what unites us. This is what we have in common. Even though you think other, everybody else in here already knows it, I don't need to tell them that. And yeah, you do. We need to be reminded of these things. It's, it's of no trouble to repeat these things. We live in very cynical times, do we not? We're being conformed into a mold that makes us distrusting, sort of by default. It's true in society at large, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's, it's just super popular to doubt everything, to doubt everyone, to doubt motives. Nothing is sincere. Everything is hopeless. Everything's a show. Nothing is genuine. All the world is just a facade. That's something that we consistently hear, and so it is tempting to look around and get sucked into that hopelessness. But our hope isn't resting in this world or this world's achievements. Titus 2, 13 through 14. We await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's us. This is our hope. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's what we sang earlier today. This is what we look forward to with hope as we confessed together even as we read the Apostles' Creed together, that we believe that Christ will return bodily. This is our blessed hope, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and of the life everlasting. And so here is our reminder when it looks like things will never change, and we can't trust anything. Rejoice in hope. Set your mind on the things above. Be patient in tribulation, trusting the Lord, and be constant in prayer. These three things go together. And in so doing, you will not be put to shame. And finally, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As you know, when we observe communion together, which we'll be doing next Sunday, we take up a benevolence offering right after that. And the purpose is, because we're just trying to obey scripture like this, 
We're trying to look after one another as family. And sometimes that means taking care of material needs that someone has within this family. We are to do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, we read in Galatians. And it says the, th- the saints, the needs of the saints. When we read saints, we shouldn't think of St. Joseph or Mother Teresa. You are not required to perform a miracle to fit into this category. Everyone who is a member of the household of faith is properly called a saint. This means we are the people of God that he has taken as his own possession, set aside, devoted for his own purpose. A hospitality was particularly important during the times when this was written. Uh, it was more than just inviting folks over to your home for pulled pork. It was welcoming people into your home to provide for their needs and to protect them as they traveled. There was more risk when you traveled back then. So you needed to provide for their needs and protect them while they were in your home. Someone who was traveling would have been easy prey for thieves, easy prey for robbers. And so as an act of worship, the Christian was to show hospitality out of a desire to please God by showing love towards a fellow worshiper who needed a place to come. This is a very practical and tangible reminder that the early church was deeply dependent upon one another. Not just within the one local gathering, but even across local gatherings that would express, express itself across cities, across states, across nations for us. We are dependent upon one another. Hospitality, rightly understood, is the, the word simply defined is showing love to strangers, to the outsider, the stranger, uh, and so from time to time, we'll have supported missionaries visit, and uh, it's not uncommon to have somebody from the church have them stay with them and to protect them, to provide for their needs in this sort of way. I think that's a, a tangible way that we're able to express hospitality in that sense, something more similar to what was experienced in the New Testament. But it could extend beyond that. It could include showing hospitality to a student who's traveled into the country to study or to those who have had to evacuate the place that they've come to because they're refugees. They come from a war-torn country and they need somewhere to go. Those who have had to flee from dangerous places. You know that we were blessed last year as a church to be able to help seven believing families who were refugees from Afghanistan after the government there fell to the Taliban. They needed somewhere to go And so we were able to help some of their tangible needs through ministry uh, with other like-minded churches. These Christians came into the nation. We were able to help with their tangible needs. I think a great example of this hospitality, the Lord at work through you all in partnership across other bodies, other local bodies that we're able to partner with to make this happen. Tangibly contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality to those who need protection and provision. Genuine love is seeking out, it's hunting for, looking for actively opportunities to provide and protect others, particularly those of the household of faith. And so as our society continues to fracture and get sorted out into ever-increasing smaller groups, this is probably going to become increasingly important for us. We need to be reminded to show charity towards others that we are not naturally drawn towards. 
to recognize that we are dependent upon one another. I hope this passage has been an encouragement to you. This is what the compelling Christian community of faith is supposed to look like. No church is perfect. We obviously don't nail it in all of these categories all the time. But let me encourage you. If you see areas where you think that some, some help needs to be given, don't step off to the side and critique. Don't step off to the side and tear down. This might be obvious, but I'm going to state it for the record, that trashing Christ's church is not a spiritual gift. And that doesn't apply to this body. It applies to other local bodies too. We're to speak well, honoring, building up, encouraging. This is the community of faith that should be compelling uh, to us and to outsiders who come in and say, surely the Lord is amongst you. This is who we are instructed to be. This is a beautiful community. I I appreciate y'all. Love you guys. And it's not because there's a vote happening later. (laughs) That would be disingenuous. (laughs) But there's a lot of love in these pews. Uh, And you can tell just by the way that folks hang out after the service or even before the service, getting to know one another, talking to one another. is that love that God creates and expresses and demonstrates through the word by his spirit hangs out like a mist in the pews here for a while after the service, and I love it. Keep it up. That love that God creates and expresses and demonstrates should be our motivation in the Christian life to live and love one another. So let's, let's keep it up. May our love be genuine. Let's pray.